You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. Welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahilly, sitting in for the podcast's regular host, Simon London. Today, new research on a hotly contested topic that affects all of us from leaders right on down the line. Performance management, or how we define, evaluate, and reward success on the job, including the much-dreaded, often derided, and in recent years, sometimes discarded, annual performance review. Joining me today are Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger, both leaders in McKinsey's organization practice and co-authors of a recent McKinsey Quarterly article on fairness in performance management. Brian, Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Good afternoon. All right, let's start with some straight talk. Um, we all know many people who find at least elements of the performance management process pretty painful. And many of us have colleagues who suffer from a version of seasonal affective disorder that begins to manifest in the fall and then vanishes magically at the close of rating season. So where do you see companies going wrong on core processes like feedback and evaluations? Bill, let's start with you. One of the most interesting things that we turfed up when we were looking at uh, a, you know, a bunch of clients, and most, many of whom said they were stopping, and we said, okay, well, come on. You have to have some way of keeping score. But when we really dug at it, you know, we found a couple basic things. Companies over the last maybe decade and a half have really fixated on tools and processes. The magic nine box, the magic rating scale, the magic form, or on the process side, you know, being fixated on the annual process. And the part that was missing always was the role of the individual manager. And so our joke title for one of our articles was putting the manager back in performance management. So I think you'll see a trend in a lot of what we're talking about in that there is still no substitute for that direct feedback and direct coaching that happens day in and day out, not just annually. We're going to have a lot of horror stories, I'm sure. But in the places where we find it's working well, it's because you're working for someone who bothers to check in and go, how's it going? Have you thought about this? I saw that. It's that critical relationship of employee to boss. Our research shows that you know the vast majority of CEOs actually don't find the performance management process all that helpful in identifying uh, who the best performance are. Over half the individual surveyed thinks that their manager didn't get the performance review right. And so we've got a process that the people receiving the review don't think they got it right, and the CEOs don't find it useful, yet we're stuck in this annual cycle of going through this because you know, it's in some companies the only time where they can force managers to give feedback. So they say it's worth all the pain to have at least one annual conversation. So this has been going on for decades, right? Performance management, not a new concept. Why now? Why are companies putting core processes back on the front burner at this particular juncture? And why do we think we can fix it now? I think there's probably two things coming together at once. One, when you saw a run of clients get rid of the ratings, they ran into the very real problem that at least in North America and Western Europe, you really do need some form of a documented administrative evaluation of the year to make any employment decisions. Or you treat everyone exactly the same. So there's just a basic legalese version of you need something. And when you went and looked at the people who made the big ballyhooed over getting rid of it, if you scratch even a little bit, they went to ghost ratings, 
they went to conversations that were calibration that really was a rating. And so there was in the background, that was the administrative function. So they recognized they needed something, but they were all saying, we can't do what we were doing before. And what had that started becoming was purely administrative outcome over maybe, let's say, I think when we went it back, it was like 25 years. So that would take us, what, to the mid-90s? You had re-engineering, right? And that was a process orientation of lean it out. You had massive uh, budget cuts and real downsizing uh, in, in the, in, during the 90s. Then you had the E-HR era in the late 90s, early noughts. That was the rise of self-service. Then you saw another round of massive cuts and increasingly moving to centers of excellence and distributed things. And so in general, the people that used to feed the beast and or that had spans of control, like the HR business partner, small enough to really provide coaching, not there. So who did it fall on? It fell on the manager. And then the manager suddenly felt overwhelmed with an increasing level of the bureaucratic nature of the process, and they started mailing it in. That's the reality. So no one was getting anything out of it that they wanted. And if you think most humans, most humans like knowing how they're doing. I mean, could you imagine playing an entire season of soccer or football or baseball and ne never actually knowing the score? You know, I, I was recently at a eight-year-old lacrosse game where they notionally didn't keep score. You know who was keeping score? The parents <laughs> <laughs> and the kids. <laughs> Everyone else was keeping score other than right. that because we like to know how it's going, right? And so I, I think there's been such a nice groundswell back of people saying, don't make this painful. But if I get something out of it that's useful, I'm willing to invest in it. And that starts more with the day in and day out and less, less about the annual. There's a structural driver to the changing nature of work that is part of why performance management has become such a hot topic now. Uh, as you get more and more jobs that are knowledge-based and interdependent, there are fewer jobs where you naturally receive the feedback of whether you did a good job or not as part of what you're doing. If you're a salesperson and you're not involved in solution selling, but rather traditional door-to-door -door salesperson, whether or not you sold a product is its own form of feedback. And you can go back at the end of the day and recognize, am I crushing it as a salesperson or not? Because I have the objective feedback. Same way if I'm operating a factory and there are a number of factories in the network making the same product and I have the lowest productivity, I can look back and say, I understand how objectively we're making fewer products or we have a higher defect rate or it's more expensive to operate in my factory. But when you're talking about the head of strategy or head of digital design, those are inherently more interdependent roles. And they're roles where the feedback may not naturally come. At the end of the day, you may feel like you're crushing it and your boss doesn't. Compounding that, I would imagine the labor market has been extremely tight in the knowledge work fields. And it would seem that there might be a correlation between supply and demand in the labor market and the need to give developmental feedback, at least, to employees in order to raise their performance because you have to compete. There's one part of it that the tight labor market makes people afraid to give negative feedback, especially during the year. They don't want to lose their people. They don't want to lose you know, this valuable resource. And it's in some cases, it's not that they're worried about losing it outside of their companies. worried losing it from the team. Oh, that person's really tough. I'm going to transfer over here. And as a manager, you know you can't replace that person, so you really soft-pedal the feedback during the year. And so for you, getting rid of ratings means, ha, huh, another reason why somebody's not, um, not going to get mad at me, not going to leave. 
But at the same time, you're not developing that person. You're not advancing it. So you're protecting against the downside, but you're never really seeing the upside of what a good ongoing performance management conversation could be. If you were to reflect on it, you know, it's interesting. So much of the conversations we have are organized around an annual process. Most of the annual processes that we have in companies are because of the financial system, driven by accounting rules, force you to close the books annually. You know, the talent, the talent budget is literally an artifact of just getting it in for the financial system. If this was 1950 or 1960, and the annual plan still mattered a lot, and you broadly knew exactly what your job was going to be, and you were going to be doing the same thing every day because it was planful and you could go, okay, we draw lines around it, then maybe a static job description and a once-a-year review that catches you, maybe, maybe that would be okay, although not likely. But in an environment where increasingly your work is chunked up to be a week, you know, uh, a couple days, a month, in that kind of work, far more dynamic, much faster cycle times, project-based work, different people, different clients, it's unacceptable, right? Because that's, again, like going to a game and leaving and go, I don't know what the score is. And you show up the next day, you're playing a different game, and you still don't get a score. That's the challenge here is that as much as we hear about all the digital stuff, all the agile stuff, the common denominator is pace and the, and, and, and the deployment and redeployment of people in different combinations. If you have any chance at all of wanting employees to feel good about what they're doing, they actually need the reinforcement in both directions. Right? Most people don't get up and going, going, yes, I'm just going to assume I'm doing wonderfully. Brian, you raised the topic of fairness. Fairness is genuinely a vexed concept. How do you optimize for a metric that is so rooted in subjective experience? How, what, in other words, what can you, companies do to make their process fairer? Part of what we actually found through our research is what the drivers are of perceived fairness in the performance management process. One of the drivers of fairness is that you understand how what you're working on fits in the bigger picture. So, okay, I understand how this links into the department or the overall strategy. The second driver of fairness, as we get into it, is that my manager has an ongoing conversation with me about how I'm doing. So I'm not surprised. There's an ongoing component. So I know what I'm working on, how it fits in. My manager has the conversation with me. And the third component of fairness is about differentiated compensation. And in particular, two kinds of differentiation. One type of differentiated compensation is making sure that the people that are loafing aren't making the same as what I'm making, because that's not fair. They're not pulling their fair share. And the other is that we're recognizing and fairly recognizing those who are disproportionately good performers, recognizing the Steph Curry and Clay Thompsons on my team. Yes, they should be making a bit more, and recognizing that actually raises the perceived fairness of everybody. So for companies, when they get those three elements right, it raises the perception of uh, fairness of the overall performance management process. So can one of us, one of you give us an example of a company that is doing those things well, or at least a couple of those things well? Take, for example, people feeling like their work and their contributions matter and align with the business goals. How does that play out in practice? We happen to spend a lot of time studying organizational health. And you know, some of the components of that talk about things like strategic clarity and role clarity. But if you think about that, that chain, it almost always starts with a few questions like, 
what's the long game for this company and do I find it meaningful? Basically, do we do something that I think matters? You go, okay, that's a great idea. What's our plan? And the plan ought to be pretty detailed. Hey, here's the milestones, here's the targets, here's the goals. And I just said goals and targets, right? Which is the annual goal setting exercise. For you to even have a hint at fairness, you got to start from those two things. I like our long game. I got our plan. I know what success will be judged by. And then dot, dot, dot down. And I know what my part of it is. And it is obvious. Classic role clarity, which means I know what you're asking me to do. I know what good looks like by when it has to be done, with whom I have to work, and what I can decide on my own. When you have that, they at least feel like they have a fighting chance. So that's almost like the hygiene factor. And then you get into the three other things Brian was talking about, which is good old-fashioned. The manager's showing up and coaching. Hey, I tried this. Have you thought about that? Ooh, that didn't go well. What do you think about this? You know that you have a fighting chance because it doesn't have to be easy. With increasing pressure for performance, you'd expect that the target-setting part would feel pretty stretchy. I think there we've seen organizations do a much better job, particularly, particularly we're in professional services, right? Where you see project-based work, IT shops that have adopted agile ways of working. Any place where they've been allowed to break it down, much easier to draw the link and an immediacy link of the thing you're doing today and how it impacts it, right? Also an attack again on the long static job description, right? Because it just, it's too hard to connect to, right? You'll see things ebb and flow and change. And for sure, I think that's a big part of it, right? This sense of meaning. I mean, it's been labeled to millennials, right? You know, millennials get labeled with a lot like, you know, oh, I want my work to be meaningful. Oh, I expect someone to be thinking about my development. If you were to convert those claims, and what Brian was talking about is matters to fairness into plain language, I'd like to know if someone cares about me. I'd like to know the things I'm working on matter. And I'd like to know how it's going so I have a chance to be successful. Well, who wouldn't want that? It's no wonder that the data was so obviously, obviously one-sided saying, if this doesn't seem fair, it's not going to yield any performance improvement individually or organizationally. So you're relating this to millennials, but in fact, it sounds like what you're illuminating applies across demographics. Everybody wants Everyone it. wants to feel like what Everyone. Doing. Yeah. Um, and so what's different about now? Is it the cadence and the complexity of working on teams and having priorities change and nimble decision-making and rapid prototyping and those kinds of environments? The voice has been given to the millennials because it's an easy group to talk about. But I think enough work has gotten more broken up and smaller chunk, and there's just enough noise in the air about it. But I think it's hard for people to ignore it now. I mean, that's my sense. I think it's almost given a, a voice to the employees to say, this has to get better for us too. I'd go back to, as we look at how roles are changing, and there are more roles that are knowledge-based, more roles that are interdependent, it becomes more and more incumbent on us to define what you're working on and why it's important. It becomes even more important to have the ongoing conversation that then explains the difference in compensation. So I really think it's that more interdependency. It's not like uh, if you go back to Glengarry Gurn Ross and you have the, you know, coffee is for closers, right? It's not like the person turned around and said, but I'm a closer, but I've got that. No, he knew where he was on the sales list. He knew he should put that coffee back. He got it. There are so many people today that literally don't get it. They'd be like, hey man, coffee is for closers. Like, yep, that's me. <laughs> I got it. But Right, and that's where the disconnect right. is, is because we've become more interdependent. The feed, the natural sources of feedback aren't there. The other thing I'd say that has advanced a bit is um, data and analytics that lets you be able to more objectively say whether you're doing a good job or not. 
And the best example of this is in sports, actually. You know, if you look at the advanced statistics in baseball that can help go into analytics of whether or not, you know, where, you're, where you are on the wins above replacement, you know, now you really understand in an advanced way, okay, what is it I'm supposed to do? Okay, actually, I'm not supposed to steal bases because stolen bases are actually net-net a negative thing. I know, what, I know where I'm supposed to be on the field because the analytics is telling me, like, I understand now in a different way what I'm supposed to be doing and how it ties to the bigger mission of getting men more on base, not going into unforced out, like all sorts of other things. Then you've got the um, whole thing about you know, the, what the manager is supposed to do. If you're a role player on an NBA team, they tell you what role you're supposed to play. Like, and now they tell you how you're supposed to go and roll, whatever. And then the compensation actually follows those. There are role players now that get paid a lot better and a lot different than role players were in the past because people understand what the value is and everybody sees that new system is fair. But it required some shift to get there. Sure. Well, also the notion of coaching, that's a built-in part of the sports function. Less so in knowledge work to Bill's point in that most managers don't have time now to spend, particularly now that there's been this proliferation of communication channels and people are slacking and instant messaging and texting and using internal platforms and so forth. So how has the role of managers changed or how do you propose that it changes in order to facilitate creating explicit KPIs that can be measured for knowledge workers, for example, and then having ongoing conversations with those knowledge workers in a way that's constructive and doesn't make people feel put upon and keeps them motivated. Well, you can't guarantee the last part, right? How they feel, whether or not they feel put upon, that's, that may be a, you know, you might still get that, right? You said something very early that teed up something we see all the time, which was around, they don't have time. So I think we would hypothesize that, I think we can all agree if someone's doing a piece of work for you, that you checking in with them about making sure they understand what you're asking, how it's going, and then positively recognizing, rewarding them, I think most people would go, oh yeah, that's a good idea. So if we agree that in general that's a good idea, but we know it's not happening, well then it's worthwhile asking why aren't otherwise well-intended managers not doing what we know is obvious. Now one that you hypothesized is I don't have enough time, but I do think we see a broader range to that, right? We, we bundle it basically into three basic things. I'm not allowed which is it's not my job. And interestingly enough, in teams that are formed and reformed or in semi-managed work teams, it may not always be clear whether or not there is role clarity about providing feedback to others. You see this quite a bit in education, right? Think about the average K through 12 teacher where the teachers are formed in teams, whether it's because the union rules or the perceived that's not how we do it around here. So you have role clarity or just, you know, or just history. You know, it would be a, nor it would be a normative violation to provide feedback. So, you know, if it's not my job, it could be because they actually just don't think it's their job, particularly in a professional setting. How many coders are giving each other feedback on their code, even if one is a tool-carrying manager? In knowledge work, you see a lot of managers who still do the profession. The second one was the one that you talked about, which is, oh, I, I, I can't. I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. or I don't know how. Very few people are going to say they don't know how to give feedback, but some of them actually don't. Right. That's why there is some, some skill training on this to be you know, behaviorally focused and what you can do, et cetera, but not be emotion-laden, not assume intent. But the time and resources one is interesting because in particular, as we have leaned out organizations, we've increased spans, we've increased complexity, we've increased expectation that you are plugged in always from the moment we give you what used to be a, um, you know, a Blackberry, now a phone. There may be many situations where managers feel like they actually don't have time. 
I can think about in many client settings where literally the first thing we did was get a handle on what the daily uh, manager routine was today and then what it should be. And you'd have to do like things like no meetings before lunch, period. You must be at first starts. You must be at, at the tool uh, talks. You must be at the morning briefing, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And by the way, you're going to go meet them when they come back in so you can give them feedback. Sometimes you have to structurally insert being a manager. I mean, think about this. The manager is saying, I don't have time to talk to the people who do the work for me. I do, however, have time to do paper, to do email, and go to meetings. I mean, when you say it that way, it is absurd that it's not happening. But that's how we've filled up their day. And then the third one is, and this gets a little bit more emotional because you think about some of the more charged things which you had led to, which are some folks, it's just you're messing with my, my relationships my standing in the community. You know, for many people, it is just too charged because they themselves will probably have been on the wrong end of some tough feedback. And they don't like how they felt. And they in inevitably project that out onto like, ooh, that might be really tough if I'm telling them that didn't go well. When meanwhile, the other person on the other end of the conversation would likely just be able to go, yeah, that went really badly. <laughs> how can I do that differently? <laughs> and what you're left with, both people, you have the employee going, I don't know where I stand. Why haven't they said something? Why aren't they helping me? And you have the manager going, oh, it's gonna, I don't want to make them feel bad. It'll get better tomorrow. That's just, that's just a vicious cycle. It never gets better. Do you genuinely believe that employees are that open to feedback? I mean, it seems to me a feature of human nature for people to fixate much more on one small item of negative feedback than on a suite of positive feedback. Sort of like, my husband gives me a lot of compliments, but when he criticizes how I organize the dishwasher, it really sticks in my craw, and that's what I remember. And I have that experience myself delivering feedback all the time, that I give a generally positive review, and it's the one piece of developmental feedback that people feel anxious about. This is, gets to part of the skill of giving feedback. Uh, there are ways of giving feedback that are strength-based, that are saying, hey, you are really excellent at delivering presentations and organizing your thoughts when you talk in front of folks would be great as if that same skill you know was applied to your written communications so that it literally read like you would be talking um, like you'd be giving a speech so why don't you read that out loud when you do it because that would really pick up on your great oral speaking capabilities mm -hmm. and then that will flip to somebody mm -hmm. and be like okay I understand Two things, one, that I'm a valued human being, that I'm doing things right, that everything isn't all bad, and two, that's actually practical. That's actually a better way of getting me to do better than to say, hey, work on your writing. It gives me a way to think about it, building on my strengths. So there is a skill of how to do that, and look, not every conversation is going to are you going to be able to have in a strengths-based way? Um, but there are skills, even if something went really badly, just asking the open-ended question. So how do you think that went? And, you know, from the vast majority of people, they're like, uh, that did not go well. Like, yeah, totally agree. Now we got it on the table. How do you think we should be thinking about what do you think did go well? Why do you think? And you can ask probing questions. Okay, so let's talk about comp because that's a factor that people really care about, right? And in the U.S. in recent years, I think the low inflation environment has often translated into constrained increases, even for higher level performers. 
You guys view comp and designing a fair comp system as one of the principal elements of a functioning performance management approach. So how do you design a system that doesn't leave employees simmering with resentment? What are the features that would make that work? So there are parts where it's easy and there are parts where it's hard. The parts where it's easy is where it is pretty objective what you're supposed to do and whether you hit the goal or not. So sales, pretty straightforward whether or not you hit the sales goal and whether you were triggered whatever level of the sales incentive plan there were. Now there are ways of tweaking it and moving, but that's pretty clear and it can be pretty graded so that you know you know how much additional you would make at each level and you know whether you hit it or not. Same thing in an operations context, can be more straightforward as to whether you hit the goals and what the consequences for that were as laid out at the beginning. Where it gets more difficult is in the more subjective knowledge-based world. And here, it is harder to make fine differentiations uh, compensation in the middle. It is easier to identify, hey, this person is a clear, outstanding differential performer at the very top end and should be rewarded more. But what we show from the research is rewarding those folks an extra 1% compared to the merit increase everybody else gets doesn't matter at all. Kind of needs to be 15% or more for that to really matter, for a compensation differentiation to really make a difference on the high end. However, the perceived slight, if somebody else that you perceive as doing roughly the same as you got an extra 1% bump, the person who got the bump is like, sure, that's nice, but didn't really do much for them. The other person is pissed, and they're going to be pissed for a month or for two months, and they will really simmer over it because it is a perceived injustice. And there is a wonderful uh, video you can download on YouTube that is two capuchin monkeys that can see each other, one of whom is fed a grape to do a simple task, the other is fed a cucumber. The grape is sweeter than the cucumber is preferred, and the capuchin monkey that gets the cucumber repeatedly when he sees his neighbor getting the grape for the exact same thing goes <laughs> ballistic. And it is like, boom, you know, that, that is, for many people, the, the comp system. So I think our view on comp design is for the harder areas where it's more subjective, really separate at the ends, the very low performers and the very high performers, and be very aware of the middle, of the risk of a long-term negative uh, result from a fine differentiation and comp that some people may not perceive as fair. A core finding for us is differentiation matters. Mm -hmm. But it's differentiation in both directions, and it starts at a basic premise of what do you believe you should be compensated for? If you believe that you should be compensated for turning up each day, that's a problem. You should be compensated for achieving your goals. Right. There's a difference, right? And then we start getting into all things around language, like we used to call something called a, uh, it was an annual cost of living increase or allowance. Everyone got that. That was to keep you whole on inflation. Somewhere along the line, we've allowed a merit to become the synonymous of that, where everyone thinks they get a merit. Well, no, it's not merit. Merit, by definition, ought to be based on performance. and ought to have actual then afloat, right? So we've, we've, over the years, allowed our language to undermine differentiation. And I think the work Brian and some of our other colleagues have led, which I think there's a real value here, which is there are truly those amongst us who walk on water. And you look and go, oh, wow, they're amazing. Yes, they should be paid more than the rest of us. And there are others that are just bringing us down. And they're an irritant. 
and they should not. And this is where it's an interesting cultural point for an organization to say, let's say there is an annual bonus. Are you willing to look people in the face and say, you still have a job. That's it. You're not getting a bonus. It's nothing additional. And you look at people who really crushed it and said, and you're getting 3x. Play that out over time. Suppose that the manager adopts an assertive talent management approach and weeds out poor players, suboptimal players, and develops that big pack of B players. Yes. How then, if you're embedding a chasm between the comp of the superstar A players and the B players, how then do you account for development among the B players and sort of a movement of the curve to the right? The basic premise here is a few things that none of us like to get our heads around. If you go into a room full of Mensa members, half that room is below average. That's the reality. Okay, so we're moving the mean on any organization up, which the ideal is you move the mean, right? And let's say the distribution even starts moving out because actually you have a bunch of people in here really good. We're not saying spend time differentiating on the heavy 80 or the heavy 75%, the ones in the middle who are all probably doing a great job because you're moving the mean. We're saying differentiate the tails. And the reality is when you're moving the mean, people who were good enough yesterday will not be good enough tomorrow. That is at the essence of a continuously improving organization. So how do you see technology facilitating this kind of process? I think as organizations get flatter, you more naturally are working with more and more people across sets of organizations. So having a way of getting and collecting feedback from all of the folks that you're working with, technology can help enable that. Who is best positioned to opine on whether a particular you know, set of code was good? Well, the person compiling it is probably in the best position to say whether that was good, clean, or not. Because once it all starts to work, it's really hard for a manager or somebody above to be able to see that. So technology can be very good in gathering peer-based feedback, feedback outside of the formal hierarchies. And in these knowledge roles where it's harder to determine what good performance looks like because there's not a built-in performance management mechanism, it's not like the salesperson where you, know, you didn't make the sale, that ongoing feedback can actually uh, from your peers in a technology-enabled way can actually make that happen. So we've heard a lot about gender bias in feedback and different ways that folks um, offer feedback for women versus for men. How does that factor into this kind of technologically facilitated feedback on all sides approach? There's gender biases, there's national biases, there's cultural biases, it's all there, right? One of the beauties of large samples is that you can see thematic trends that can sort of rule some of these things out because it's over rolling large numbers, right? So, you'll, you know, if someone's, if someone's a jerk, if you only have one data point, you have no idea whether that's the prickliness of the, of the person who's providing it or actual behavior. But if you roll over these samples and go, mm, there is a pattern here of varying degrees of things about how they deliver feedback or how they, or how they interact when it comes to, uh, you know, taking credit for things. So large samples get a lot. There is also, uh, and you know, there's, there's an opportunity here to separate out administrative feedback, which is that which goes into the review from developmental feedback. It is really interesting that some of these platforms, whether it's like the apps where people are nudged to give the feedback, if you make it clear that the feedback is developmental, it is much more direct mm -hmm. and much more pointed with much less varnish. 
about saying you're doing this, this is working, you're doing this, this is not. Give me your two-sentence summary to a CEO or to a leader who really wants to break through on performance management. Improving performance management is about putting the manager back into performance management and making sure that you've got the right ongoing conversations versus a one-time annual review that may seem disconnected from the employee's reality. I think for all CEOs, I'd say, well, I just can only remind you of this. For everyone else in the organization, you are they. And if you want to change the tenor of performance, you have to change the way in which you're engaging on it. And the beauty of that is every person who has a relationship where they're responsible for leading others has an opportunity to do that every day. Right? So don't make it about the system. Don't make it about the process. Don't make it about the tool. Just start with the actual interaction. What are we doing today or this week? How's it going? What can we do better? Stop. Just do that. It gets better. Great. Brian Hancock, Bill Shaniger, thanks for talking with us today. For more on performance management, visit us at www.mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.